Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Good morning and happy Thursday. This episode is so much fun and it's so informative. Nick Bogner is great. He's someone I would definitely be friends with. I had a great time speaking with him and I think that really comes through in the interview and he's so knowledgeable about his field. So I think you're going to love this episode and I'll keep this brief this morning. I am personally a little frazzled because I'm going into my the third uh, round of my intermediate year of somatic experiencing training actually starts tomorrow. And then as soon as that's done, I head for the mountains and go on my backpacking trip. So this I'm getting this episode out a day late, and, but I really wanted to get it out. So I didn't want to wait until next week. And uh, I hope you all can forgive me for it being a day late, but I, I trust that you can. In other news, the webinar is coming up, Clear and Calm, Stop the Stress Cycle and Build Resilience. That's going to be September 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I will put that link in the show notes. If you want to take part in this, um, go ahead and register for it, even if you if you want to watch the replay, because if you register, then you're, you will automatically be sent it. And I'm going to do a, like a pretty big marketing push, so I think it might actually fill up. So if it's something that you you want the information go ahead and register so that you're you're in. And it's going to be great. I've decided I want to really incorporate a lot of experiential practice and so that everybody leaves with a really nice sense of calm, which I think makes a lot of sense given the name of the webinar. So I think it's going to be really good. It'll be something different. I'm still working on the information and I'm sure when I come back from my trip, I'll have had you know plenty of wonderful insights from, from hiking for so many days. So please keep me in your thoughts and wish me good health. <laughs> my joints are sore. But anyways, thank you guys for, for tuning into the show. Thank you for supporting the podcast. And yeah, well, let's get right on into this episode. Um, please like and subscribe as always. Please tell one friend today if you can about the show. Oh, one more exciting thing. I'm looking for musical guests to, I want to feature a song at the end of each episode uh, starting when I get back, I'll get the process going. I have a few people who are who want to contribute. So if you're a musician, if you know a musician, please um, contact me and let's get you on the uh, let's get you on the show. Not to be interviewed, but I want to feature your song to close out the episode, and then of course share your information and all of that, so people know who you are. But I'd really love to to feature musicians and have a song to wrap us up. So if that's you or someone you know, please get in touch with me and you can do so via Facebook. That link is in there for you. So thanks again. If you could share with one friend today, that would be really great. Enjoy the episode. It's wonderful and it is chock full of good information and plenty of giggles. So take care. Hi, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. With me today, I have Mr. Nick Bogner. He is a marriage and family therapist in Pasadena, California, and he specializes in men's issues and codependency. Hi, Nick. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for being here today. Totally my pleasure. Yeah, I love that you specialize in in men's issues, particularly because this is a a podcast primarily geared towards women. Um, But I, I think a, we're all really curious about men, and, and we want to be <laughs> be able to support <laughs> support them on their own growth as we go sure. through um, as we go through ours. So, 
Uh, I'd love to. What led you to to a focus on men? Is it just being a man yourself, or were there other things that came up in your education? Well, that was a part of it. I mean, I would say, without wanting to sound glib, men's issues are women's issues, you know. Yeah. And I would say that a lot of uh, the issues that I see that face women ultimately emerge from really unresolved issues for men. <laughs> that men then make women's issues, right? So those two things are intertwined with one another. And I would say in terms of um, of working with men exclusively, you know, yeah, a lot of my own development as a man came from my work that I did with my own therapists. Um, and I feel like I have a view that a lot of therapists don't necessarily um, come prepackaged with, which is the notion of what it is like to be a man and to start therapy sort of fresh, right? And it's a it's a weird and scary and sometimes unpleasant process. And so I think having been that way myself, it's easy for me to talk to men about that. Oh, that's such a valuable, a valuable skill set that you offer. Um, Thank you. Just, just even that simple thing to, to help the process be slightly more comfortable for someone. Um, do you, what do you think does make it easier or what do you think like, because I feel like there's kind of a stigma around therapy, more so for men, and maybe I'm wrong here, please mm. correct me if so, no. but I, I feel like it's almost easier for, for women to go to therapy or for women to seek personal development health or personal growth help, and that there, we still have this kind of stigma that men need to be like strong and power through, and, and right. we're still working within this old kind of paradigm that we, we really know through the research doesn't, doesn't serve us that well. Sure. Um, but when you're a kid, it serves you perfectly. So huh. if I can say to you, like, um, if you're a, if you're a 10 year old boy, um, knowing how not to cry and knowing how to uh, repress your feelings, knowing how to be super tough. Um, if you know how to kick somebody's ass, those are all things that as a kid will serve a boy very, very well. Like the world is absolutely ready to deal with um, boys that know how to tumble, right? Hmm. The world is less prepared in general to deal with boys who know how to cry. And so the result is you build up this set of skills that really serves you in your early years. And then maybe when you're an adult, they don't serve you so well. And so that's ultimately a lot of times when men end up in therapy. But the process of working with men in therapy is the process of saying, take this thing. It's worked for you for years, decades, maybe. And then we're just going to put it on the back burner. Like we're just going to we're just going to encourage you to do something that's uncomfortable and feels like it wouldn't work for you. And it is really scary. So it takes a lot of courage for men um, oftentimes just to even start therapy, but I'm living proof that, you know, when we stick with it, a lot of times it works out really well. Yeah, that's great. Did you, um, did you become a therapist because of your own experiences with therapy? Yeah, absolutely. I had this, uh, I had a career in, um, the corporate world prior to this. Um, and I had a situation where the job was good. My boss was really nice to me. I was paid real well. I liked the people that worked for me and I was so miserable that I didn't want to get up in the morning. Hmm. And I just, you know, at that point, if everything else is right, but you're miserable, then it's just not a good fit. Right. right. And so I went to my own therapist for the first time and she was the first person that gave me permission to not want to do that job, which seems silly. Like I shouldn't need somebody else's permission for that, but I did. And ultimately she said, you know, so what if you did quit and move away? Then suddenly the skies opened and I was a, a like a, it was like a new perspective on the world, a new lease on life, so to speak. So ultimately I did quit that job and I moved away and continued to look for work in the same field. Cause you know, some lessons take a long time to learn. 
And then it didn't work out. It was the recession. There was no work to be going around. And in the time, in that time I got married and my wife and I did couples counseling and that counselor said, well, did you ever think about doing this? And that would never have been in my realm of things that I would have thought I was capable of, but I attended an open house and suddenly, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I hope that you have the experience of landing someplace and saying, oh my God, this is exactly where I want to be. Yes. Yeah. I feel that way with my work currently. It's yeah. Work I've been looking for my whole life. I, like I get emotional around it. I'm like, God, I feel so lucky, you know, to, to have that experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, can I, can I ask you, cause I'm curious about this. What is the part of your work that is deeply meaningful to you? Sure. So for me, it was really finding out about somatic experiencing um, through my own therapist. Very similar. She started using SE with me when I was um, brand newly sober, like week one. And it was just such an experience for me to, to come into my own body. Like it was different than trying to not use a substance. It was like I was filling out in myself and continue to, you know, three years later, I'm just more and more me. And I was just so taken by the work that I've, you know, I'm in the, the I'm finishing up my intermediate year of training. So I'm almost like a full-fledged SEP, which is really cool. But yeah, it's like, I've always been really interested in neuroscience. I have my doctorate in, in PT and I've been studying all these alternative modalities and things for years, but it's like this work makes so much sense to me on multiple levels. And it's so, it's so gratifying to share it and see it benefit other people as well. Yeah. So yeah it feels really yeah. cool. Yeah. You can turn around and do this same wonderful thing that your therapist did for you. And yeah. if I can liken this experience and tell me if this is not, if I'm making bullshit up here, um, but like if you... I appreciate that. When you first started uh, somatic experiencing, right? Did you find that you had trouble sort of identifying things, placing things in your body, naming the feelings? Did you have trouble sort of like making sense of it when you first started examining it? Not, not that much, honestly. I I feel like it came relatively natural. um, And it could just be because of other work that I've studied and things that I've done and meditation practices or or whatever. But for me, it it, like, it made sense to to analyze or, look at my body that way. Um, have you well, found that for you? Well, so yeah. So the analogy I was going to make that is a, a poor one at this point was that um, right. oftentimes the first times men look at their feelings. And again, I count myself in this number. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm feeling. Yeah. A big, big know. time. Yeah. And I'm just I, numb. What, like, it's okay. Yeah. I get that a lot too, where people will tell me about a really stressful time in their life. And then I'll be like, well, how does your body feel? My body's fine. I don't know. Why do you ask? Oh, I broke out in hives last week. <laughs> And I'm like, well, yeah. maybe let's just take a look at what's happening. Because we're not really ever trained to do that. You know, we're right. not really ever trained to notice how we're feeling, what are our sensations. It, it is, um, I think I was probably a little bit of an anomaly in that sense. Or maybe I just, I'd, you know, done Vipassana and I don't know. Maybe. Well, maybe you're just really gifted at it. I mean, maybe you were just Could be my zone of genius. I can just feel really well. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a pretty rad zone of genius, I think. Yeah, thanks. And you know, Nick, I really appreciate that you prefaced your, I'm going to make this analogy with stop me if it's bullshit, because sometimes I, I feel like I'll say things and then people will try to like summarize them, but then it won't be right. And then I, this happened uh-huh. to me when I was a guest on someone's podcast, this guy kept like summarizing incorrectly. Mm. And I was like, let me go back and say it again. <laughs> um, so I appreciate that approach. Well, thank you. It came after realizing um, that I was doing it wrong a lot. And that it might, it might benefit me to, to provide that so that people could tell me when I was off track. And as a therapist, it's very helpful to know when you're off track. Definitely. And I'll remember that as well for my own uh, practice and clients, yeah. and, you know, interactions in general. 
So how long have you been, well, um, two, two questions. I'm, I'm curious what your corporate job was. And then I was going to ask how long you've been practicing as a therapist. So my corporate job to make a complicated story simple was HR. I did a lot of uh, HR and operations um, okay. at, a, at a business in Illinois. <clears throat> and I mean, I, I haven't met a lot of HR people that love it anyway. Like it doesn't seem to be one of those things that people really enjoy for the most part. And it's for sure one of those things that people aren't very good at for the most part. Mm. Do you know how there's some jobs where like there's a lot of people that are good at it? HR is not one of those jobs. And I wouldn't classify myself as particularly skilled at it. Okay. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? Uh, I always think of Toby Flunderson with HR and how miserable he is. Right. And I think Toby's... <laughs> mostly great at it like they wrote little moments for him where like at one point he says something like i'm hr's a joke and he throws up this folder in there and like there's certain things that he does that are bad but generally i actually think toby is one of the guys that kind of knows what he's doing yeah you know which is why he's miserable right <laughs> that's it um the second question was how long have you been practicing as a therapist right so i have i saw my first client in 2013 Okay. So I guess it, you know, and obviously that was through the intern years and, and all of that. So I, I guess about seven years now. Um, and it's, it's still amazing. You know, it's, so it's both gratifying and frustrating to find out on a routine basis how much I don't know yeah. yet. Yeah. You know, I feel you there. I think that's, I think that's part of, I was thinking about this today on my hike. Like I think it's part of committing to be a growth oriented person is that there's always going to be a little bit of being uncomfortable in your life and that like being kind of content with that uncomfortableness is part of like how we have to adapt to go through life if we're interested in continue, continuing to grow as humans. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, don't you think we attach so much and it's human, but we attach so much unnecessary dread with um, the unknown. And sometimes the unknown is a surprise birthday party. You know, sometimes the unknown is really more wonderful than you could ever have guessed, but we always disaster plan. Yeah. I think it's just our biological, like neuro, neurobiology, I guess, that we're, if we oh, don't yeah. know what it is. We're expecting that it's going to kill us immediately and we should well, never, I mean, ever do it. How many thousands of years were we just dodging animals and trying to pick up enough berries off the ground to eat? Yeah. You know, <laughs> this thing that we're doing right now is relatively recent. So I often find as a therapist, and I don't mean this in a, like a creepy men are from Mars kind of way, but like in general with all human beings that I see, I find that if you're looking for the answer of why do I do this thing, a lot of times you can find it in a sort of prehistoric context, making yeah. sense. Anger being one of those things, right? Yeah. Anger is so helpful if you need to beat up other people or animals in order to eat. Um, in 2020, hopefully that's not your career path. And so anger doesn't serve most of us a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that sort of explosive, rageful in the moment anger. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, have you seen, so you've been in practice about seven years. Have you seen men's issues change at all in that time or men's needs change at the time you've been practicing? I'd be curious about that. What, what a neat question. Yeah. Well, for sure. And I'll tell you for the first part of my career, I was working exclusively with children. So, you know, there's no, there would be no way to know, but I'd be interested how some of those children that are now men, how their needs have changed. But yeah, um, in terms, yeah, you know, we're in a really interesting and exciting moment as a country and as a world right now, I think, where we're really starting to um, understand things like gender differently, right? Um, I probably should say I work with masculinity issues rather than men's issues because gender is such an interesting spectrum and so many people, you know, identify in so many different ways, right? Um, I think that there, you know, the Me Too movement has 
created a really interesting um, tension among men that I think is really helpful. Um, ultimately, although it's really scary, where a lot to maybe almost all of us are looking back and re-examining our behaviors um, over the course of our lifetimes and saying, well, what part of this is me? You know, what part of this was something that I did? What could have been perceived differently than how um, I meant it? Or, you know, what times have I been toxic um, or predatory? You know, like the whole spectrum, it's really something that we never were encouraged to, to stop and think about before you know, maybe 15 years ago, nobody, you know, they said, not your belt and move on. It's great. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we're really starting to examine how the things that we do affect other people, women in particular. And I think that's fantastic. And that's something that I've, I spend a lot of time with clients on in therapy. Yeah. That's such a great, that was a really great summary of, of how that applies to men. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so nice. <laughs> it's true. And I should mention Nick and I are both in Southern California where it's quite hot. And, you know, we I've turned off all my fans and closed the windows and neither of us have AC. So you'll probably hear a lot of water gulping. Oh yeah. Sorry. I, I did. No, I'm, do, I'm doing the same thing. Um, I'm just letting the audience know we're, we're like in a sauna for this episode. It's like a soda commercial in here. Every two minutes, one of us pauses, wipes <laughs> the sweat off, takes a huge gulp. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And I'm drinking this carbonated water. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so what are you, what are some ways that you help or that you think are helpful for men to approach vulnerability as more of a strength than as like a perceived weakness? Sure. Um, well, I think for all of us, not just for men, but especially for men, we have to, we have to see that there would be a reason to do it. Mm. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, we greet vulnerability for the first time since we're kids and we think, well, why, why would I ever, ever do that? Yeah. Ever. Like there would be no reason for me to want to um, be vulnerable to other people, to bear myself, to show my fear or my sad emotions, um, to take risks, right? And for sure, it's a safer route most of the time not to be. But then once you, once you do allow that into your life, you are uh, open to a lot of new things like being able to be intimate with people and not just sexually, but emotionally, um, interpersonally intimate with people to have real um, deep relationships. Um, and, you know, not to walk around afraid all the time because when you're, when you're living your life in the context of all that fear, the fear will just take over and that becomes sort of your, you know, the, the theme of everything that you do, right? So thing number one is, is to help people understand that there's a reason to try it. And then the second thing is to create a space um, where people can try it out and know also that, you know, once you close the door, we have this wonderful confidentiality. So you can say whatever you want, as long as it's not about victimizing a child or, a, you know, an otherwise vulnerable person and you can walk away. And I'm like no one's ever going to know about it. The power in having a therapist in your life that's not connected to other parts of your life is so big. Yes. Um, and so then that's a like it's like a practice zone, right? Can I practice being vulnerable in front of this person? So once people decide that there's a reason to do it and then they test it out and it seems to work, then a lot of times people will go out and try it in their real lives. And it, it's often a really beautiful thing. Oh, that's great. I love the way you you spoke about that. And, and the the need to have it matter. Like, yeah, why does this matter? Um, yeah, we really do. I mean, again, I, and I'm not making excuses for anyone's behavior, right? But we give a lot of boys a really, sh can I swear? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, okay. We give a lot of boys a really shitty playbook to start with yeah. in terms of like what kind of behavior we expect from them and what we accept from them and what we don't accept from them. And so the result is 
you know, a lot of times they grow up knowing these things, um, you know, knowing these ways to act that just are not suitable. <laughs> They're not suitable for adults. Yeah. They're not suitable for people in relationships. And then if that's the only thing that served you, you know, why in the world would you want to change that? Right. It's back to that fear of the unknown. If there's no idea of what's actually on the other side of that behavior, then there's not a lot of incentive. Well, yeah. And I mean, imagine what the cost is. Um, if you're, if you're a 10 year old boy and you cry, you pay a price for that. I mean, maybe hopefully not in 2020, it's been a long time since I was a 10 year old boy, but back in, in, you know, many years ago when I was, you know, if you cried, that really opened you up to a lot of unpleasant stuff. Right. And so you would learn very quickly not to do that. But I'm, you know, I'm much older than 10 now and I feel like I can cry and I'm not vulnerable to much more than maybe you laughing at me or, you know, mm -hmm. somebody who I don't care about bothering me about it, you know? So you also have to relearn what the context is for your adult life versus what it was like for your child life. Sure. I've, and I feel like we probably built a little bit of a threshold too. Like, like you were saying, they try it with you in this nice closed space. And then as they try it more in their own lives, it's like the ability to, to do it more and more begins to expand. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah, of course. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah, sure. So somatic experiencing is super hot right now and people love it. And I hear about it from my colleagues in glowing terms. That's great to hear because when I talk about it, I feel like people don't know what, I, what I'm talking about it. And I'm like, here's an article. It's great. Go read it. It's a great <laughs> article. I, like, I won't shut up about it. Um, well, to a certain number of people, I'm sure it'll always be inside baseball. But in my world where I hang out with mostly therapists mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, it's big and people are talking about it. And I'll say that I think the somatic experience is something that's really um, a little bit of a blind spot for me in my practice, right? It's something that I'm lightly aware of and I respect it, but it doesn't come up a lot in the ways that I process stuff with people. So if I can ask you, like, what are the, what are the really effective things that you know so far at this point in your training? Like, what is the, what is the part of somatic that just knocks you out? Sure. So some of my biggest takeaways and, and really where I start, cause I lead, um, I teach little four week courses. I shouldn't call them little. I teach four week foundational courses. Epic like four week like courses. A, yeah. It's like a group, uh, group coaching type setting. You know, I'm not a therapist, so I don't do group therapy, but mm. group coaching and we do somatic exercises and it's all about, you know, because I work primarily with, with women around moving forward from addiction. It's like, well, how can, just like my experience, how can you fill up into yourself versus, you know, wanting this substance or, or what in you is, is wanting you to um, look for this thing outside yourself to feel better. Right. So it's like, how can we start feeling better from the inside out? So to speak mm. more to your, your point and answer your question, some things I find really helpful are just beginning to notice like what's happening, like start noticing what sensations are going on. And this is like you were saying earlier, this is a really big challenge for many, many people just to pinpoint, because sometimes I'll ask people like, what are you feeling? And it'll be like, well, I think I, or, oh, I've got so much stress. I can just tell because I I'm you know, and sometimes I'll get a sensation with that. And this isn't to shame anyone or say anyone's doing it wrong. It's just a skill we've never been taught. Yeah. So there's a, there's a learning curve with it. Um, and so it takes practice, you know, it took me practice too. I wasn't like instantly like, Oh, I'm hyper aware of everything in my body. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if you were, okay. I know, I think, wow, that would be neat. Um, <laughs> um, so that practices that alone, it, because it helps people, people to, I think learn to trust themselves more because if we can notice what we're actually feeling, like a, it, it brings us into the present moment. There's a lot of really cool research. I don't know how much into brain stuff you are, but there's a lot of really cool research on this practice of interoception, which is this practice of noticing how we're feeling. And so mm -hmm. it's different than just being like, Oh, I feel cold. It's like the act of noticing that I feel cold. 
and they've done some like pretty cool MRI studies where this, the right insula lights up when people are noticing that they feel cold versus when they just feel cold. Oh, how interesting. I did not know about any of that. It's super cool. And I've been, I'm doing it. I'm preparing for this talk on resilience. So I'm looking up a bunch of stuff and there's also this, this correlation between uh, the ability to practice interoception and your, your resilience levels, which is pretty mm -hmm. cool. So that's a big thing. And then the other thing I'll say, and then I'll stop talking about it because I could go on for a long time, um, is the having people notice when they feel good or when they yeah. feel, you know, good. I don't really love that word, but you know what I mean? Or when they sure. uh, have a pleasant experience, when they feel like themselves and just slow those moments down. Oh, and to yeah. really, it's like savoring a, a chocolate cake or a delicious meal or to really right. like slow that down and take in the sensory quality of the experience. And then that teaches our nervous system like, oh, I can have this. And even if it's very, very small in the beginning, and if they don't ever feel good, it's like notice when you feel a little bit less of the shitty feeling, you know, less constricted or less like, where do you feel 2% better in your body? And so we, then we start changing like the awareness or not even changing it, it's just redirecting it yeah. to something that's less. And this works really well with chronic pain actually too. I was about to say that I've heard that as an intervention with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, that's like where I start with everybody. And then, um, but the, yeah, the feeling good. And Rick Hansen has a cool take on it too. He has like a three-step thing. I don't know if you know Rick Hansen, but he's a pretty mm -hmm. awesome, um, he's a psychologist and a researcher. I'll send you his website. It's great. It's tons of articles. I don't know if you geek out on this stuff, but it's. I don't, but I, I desperately <laughs> want to be a person who geeks out on this stuff. So from now on, when you don't, when you mention somebody, I don't know, I'm going to be like, oh, Rick. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm and kind then the of listener will know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know my listeners no, are like, God, why is she so crazy about Rick Hansen? But his research is really cool because he, he does a lot of research on like positivity and happiness, but it's not from this like sort of toxic positivity model. It's it's a very embodied uh, pers perspective. I, so anyway, yeah. I love that you brought up toxic positivity because it's kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah, and it's very prevalent right now. It's so big right now. It's a wonderful marketing tool. I feel like people have people can really create a sort of photographic um, representation style. Instagram. You know, and I say this, I have an Instagram for my practice too. I'm not immune to it, but I'm not trying to like create weird ideals that people can't possibly live up to. And I feel like there is an element of merchandising to this stuff that really gives me the willies. Yeah. You know, it's um, pretty gross. And, and uh, well, actually, no, I'll save that. I might circle back to that. Okay. Okay. So we're going to, we have a place to circle back. Um, <laughs> but I have a question for you. Okay. So you were talking about noticing your experience and validating your experience and, um, and again, tell me if, if you haven't found this to be the case, but I have certainly done work with women and I find that one of the things that seems to happen a lot is that women are told to invalidate their own experiences or to ignore them or to understand them in a different way or their own experiences get kind of negated by the outside world. Have you seen that? Have you known that to be the case? Um, I think that does happen. That hasn't been a, a primary component in my practice um, mm. or in what I've seen, you know, and again, I'm an intermediate level student, so I haven't been doing this work for all that long. Um, I think that's maybe more of like a older paradigm, but honestly, right. I don't know. Cause I don't run into it. I feel like that was absolutely the case. Like even 20, 40 
you know, for older women, absolutely. Um, right. I don't know if it's as prevalent. I think probably. Oh, in, I hope not. Yeah, for Great. some people it is, but it's somebody put this ad up. It was like an old ad from the twenties talking about what women needed to do before bedtime, and like it was so cringeworthy. It was like you don't let your husband see you with rollers, and it was this whole like thing about sex, and it was like you should be compliant and do whatever he wants and let out a gentle moan when he's climax. Like it was so gross. Wow. And I'm like, God, this is what they were actually teaching people not that long ago. Maybe it was the yeah. 40s. Was it? It's like in, within my mom's lifetime. Maybe it was 1986. I don't know. I, I, know. I feel like I've heard echoes <laughs> of some of these things. Yes. Yeah. But the reason I asked this, this question, and hopefully I hope that it's not really a part of people's lives anymore, but in terms of working, doing sort of gender work, um, one of the things that I have observed about myself and other men, and I think especially white men, is that we get raised to believe um, that what we think is correct unless somebody proves us wrong. I think that's accurate. Oh, yeah. All right. So that, okay. So this one we have seen for sure, right? And so yes. it's a thing where, where then if there are parts of the world that you don't see, then you assume that they don't exist. And then you also believe it's incumbent on other people to prove to you that they do exist. Right. And so if you're watching, um, <clears throat> if you're watching the Kavanaugh hearings and somebody's saying, yeah, there's a lot of really ugly stuff out there and there's a, you know, real sexual assault culture. Um, but I've never, I've never seen somebody get raped. I don't actually think that is a problem. Right. Well, maybe a lot of people have seen it happen. Maybe I haven't, but maybe a lot of people haven't. It's not anybody's job to sort of prove it to me, mm -hmm. you know, that it happens. And so I feel like a lot of the big work with my own work that I do and then the work that I do with men is, is sort of um, unraveling this notion of like, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Or like, if somebody disagrees with me, they need to prove, they need to prevail on me to have their viewpoint, mm -hmm. you know? Interesting. Do you, how does that work go with men? <laughs> like, uh, often, well, I mean, I feel like the, the kind of men that show up for therapy are often really curious about it. Yeah, you know, and I think that again, you know, we have this larger conversation that we're having right now. And I think that that has um, made a lot of men really curious to understand what it's about because it's sort of like 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. Right. You know, the, that album, that Elvis record. No, I don't. Oh, Elvis had an album called 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. The idea being like, if 50 million people love him, he's got to be the greatest. Right. That's and great. so with this thing, like it, it's brilliant. Right. And so if 50 million people are saying, no, we have really serious systemic problems then suddenly it's going to be harder and harder to say, well, I don't think that we do. And so then the key is now that you're curious about it, who can you ask and talk to about it that is going to be able to, um, is going to be able to discuss it with you without having their own sort of stuff triggered, hopefully, and without um, feeling like they're carrying an unreasonable emotional burden for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's why therapy is so great is to come into that space. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm hoping yeah, he definitely is. Definitely is. Do you think that on what you just said, the fact that we're all, we're, there's like so much information now and we're so inundated from so many channels and then we've got the, we, all of our, our news isn't really, and I, I won't get too political here or anything, but I feel like it's very hard to find a, a non-biased news source. So I think it's almost really easy to dismiss things if they aren't within our, our realm of what we've seen or what we know. It's, it's almost really easy because there's so much information to dismiss that as like, oh, it's fake or that's not real or somebody's just making that up to prove their own point or work their own agenda. So I can stay in my, you know, my, my box or in my mindset of, I haven't seen it. So this isn't true. 
Well, this, I mean, this, first off, to start off with, this feels like a time to get political. So don't, <laughs> don't, uh, don't not get political on my behalf here and feel free to challenge me at any point that you want to. But I think we're called upon right now to be better people, right? And yeah. I think that, you know, and I'm really guilty of this myself. So I'm not saying here's the thing that I've perfected and everybody else needs to get better at, right? Like it's, we're called upon to find trustworthy news sources and to vet our journalists um, and not be lazy. And I think that, you know, the temptation, the human temptation is to, you know, again, looking prehistorically, right, is to rack up as many berries as you can in your winter vault and then take it easy, right? But we have to fight that urge. We have to actually decide to be members of our community because in terms of happiness, right, like non-toxic happiness, I feel like involvement with others, with your community, um, and with yourself is where actual contentment comes yeah. from. So yeah, it is hard to find a non-biased news source, but that's work that we have to be doing mm, um, or we're victim to it. Yep. That's great. And I, I love what you said about connection with other humans. I was listening to a podcast this morning um, with Sharon Salzberg. I don't, mm. I, I'm not sure I knew who she was. She's big in like the meditation movement with um, I think Jack Cornfield and kind of an old school player. Oh, Jack. You know, Jack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my guy. I know what it's, you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's Rick Hansen's podcast. I'm sure, Rick, to. Jack, yeah, the whole gang. Right. You know those guys. But she was talking about this practice of uh, meta meditation and like how important it is for us to have community, you know, now more than ever in this practice. And meta meditation is like loving kindness meditations. So the gist is you you pick a person that you love and you, you say like, may they be happy, may they be free and, and some other stuff, may they be healthy. Um, and you picture them and you kind of you know send them love or, or just feel love in your heart while you think of them. And then you pick a person you're neutral towards and do the same mm -hmm. thing. And then as the practice goes, you pick someone who maybe you, you don't like that much or is a challenge for you and send them. Right. She was saying a really nice way to build community is to to work with that person that you might see on a regular basis, like your grocery store clerk, but that you don't really have any true connection with other than, you know, these interactions, um, but to do this loving kindness practice. And then the next time you see them or the times that you see them, you feel more of this connection because you've held them in this way and this meditative practice. And that can be like a way that we can build community just sort of with our own practices, which I thought that was a neat approach. That seems really powerful. Yeah. It's, I'm going to try it. Yeah. I might try that too. That's a, I, I really like that. I do too. And, and I think Simple. it's, it's so it's simple well and i like it because it's healing too right it's a thing that says um i'm gonna take this painful thing and i'm gonna attempt to see this person as a human being and it doesn't mean that i risk myself to be re-traumatized i'm not subjecting myself to additional doses of this person i'm not opening myself up for this person to transgress against me again but i'm also not going to hold this hate and i'm going to understand that they're a human being mm -hmm. just like i am one of the things about self-esteem um that I have learned, and this is the kind of thing that's very easy for a therapist to say and very challenging for us to live out, is that the is really healthy self-esteem is when you believe yourself to be equal to, in value to every other person on the planet, right? And on its face, that would be super easy. Oh, of course I am, right? But then you look out into the world and say, well, how do I treat people? You know, how do I treat um, people who are homeless? How do I treat people who I don't see for any reason other than that I pay them to hand me a coffee or bag up my groceries? all the way up to how do I treat people who are high in status? How do I treat rich, rich people or famous people? Yeah. And then you start to get to the nitty gritty of what your self-esteem actually really looks like, yeah. you know? Yeah. And how big the ego is involved in, in that. Yeah. Well, and it's unconscious too. I feel like this is another primitive thing, right? We organize ourselves socially 
but we don't really maybe need to do that anymore because we're not, you know, living in trees trying to protect ourselves from hyenas anymore. Yeah, it's true. It's going to be so interesting. I mean, I, I wish somebody could do like a thousand year longitudinal study on the, evolu- <laughs> the evolution of our brains, you know, from where we are now to maybe where we'll be if we continue in some of these practices, Yeah, you know, building connection more than having to really like struggle and fight for resources because we're not at that place right now. Right. Well, I mean, and then some of us are, right? Yeah. 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 I'd love to see that study if you ever get your hands on it. <laughs> I need Let a me know. <laughs> Who can live forever? Uh-huh. If, if that's you, give me a call. <laughs> she sacrificed eternal peace to understand the human brain better. Oh, Truly. Man, I feel like I might do that. I don't know. Eternal <laughs> peace sounds pretty good. Yeah. Hard to win. I know. Yeah. So you work with codependency a lot as well. Yes. It's mm-hmm. one of your specialties. Love it. Um, how do you... Let's see, what do I want to ask you? How do you see, how do you see people working through this, I guess, in relationships or what are some ways, I guess maybe for the audience, what are some ways we could be aware if we are in a codependent relationship and ways that we could start to make some, some small changes? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I got to say the first thing, and I, I hope this will resonate with you. The first thing is you got to know how you're feeling. Yeah. And so you have to know if you, you know, you have to really dig deep and not just the, oh, I'm Hey, everything's okay kind of thing. But you really have to know, like, well, how do I feel when I'm dealing with this person? How do I feel when this person um, behaves this way to me? Like, what is it? How is our situation? How am I caring for people in a way that's hurting me? Do you know what I mean? Like, and it, we really do have these wonderful, finely tuned instruments inside us that say like, uh, something's not right. Something's not right. And they're very easy also to silence, right? We can drown them with alcohol or whatever, um, or we can just get immersed in something else. And so, so the first thing is sort of to, to know what's bothering you. And sometimes that's where therapy can really be helpful, right? Somebody comes in, they're kind of miserable. They don't know why we start talking about their life. And it's like, wow, I've noticed a lot of your stories involve you taking care of this person. Hmm. You know, I'm wondering why is it that they don't take care of themselves? You know what I mean? Or did, did that bother you for, you know, in a, you know, here's an extreme example and I'm making this up, this isn't an actual client, but like, did it bother you that you had to call their boss to tell them that they were sick when in fact they were just hungover? Like, how did you feel about that? Because most of the time when you get down to the nitty gritty, yeah, that does bother me. Yeah. You know, that really pisses me off that I had to do that for this person and then caring for this person. And so then once you get to the point where you start to, to really understand the distinction between things that I do because I love someone versus things that I do because I don't know how not to do them for this person, Mm -hmm. then you can start making some really interesting decisions about how you want to live your life. And then you get to do the fun part, which is you start making change and then you deal with all of the, um, the pushback from the family member who is a dependent, right? You know, um, because of course families like to remain in stasis. They like to keep doing things the same way all the time. And so there's always pushback from change, but, but damn it, once you get that, that delicious little feeling of like, I set a boundary and I'm better and I'm healthier for it. And maybe they were pissed off. Maybe they were actually healthier for it too. And the whole system was healthier. There's just nothing like it. And you think that's the, what drives like the continuation? Cause my next sort of line of line of questioning is, is around, you know, how do we start to make those, those tiny little subtle changes? And especially if 
we were met with a lot of pushback. So that's what I see and hear a lot of, um, you know, and I'm thinking more of like partnerships and romantic relationships around codependency of, oh, if I didn't do, you know, this thing that I normally do for him, like do all the dishes or whatever, then, you know, he gets angry and. Right. Um, well, so this is again, where therapy can be really helpful. So if somebody says um, the dishes one is a, is a, a lovely, Easy example, right? We like, do a lot of dishes over here. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we're pretty, we share them pretty well, I gotta say. I think we're good at it. See, I, I need a little dose of that because dishes are officially my job and I am very yeah. lax about them. So perhaps, you know, my partner's in therapy right now, perhaps talking about this exact <laughs> failure on my part. But the, uh, but so let's say that, you know, I'm doing the dishes over and over again, right? And then, you know, okay, so why are you doing the dishes? Well, when I don't do them, my partner says I'm acting like an asshole. Hmm. Oh, are you an asshole? Well, I mean, I don't think so. Is it okay that your partner calls you an asshole? Is it okay that your partner makes you feel guilty about this? Like, how do you want this to look? Mm -hmm. And then even just by virtue of being the person that reflects back a response to the situation that is not you are an asshole, there's real power in that. Yes. And so I think that that's another thing. You know, you get this validation, hopefully from your therapist that says, I actually think it's great when you listen to your instincts. I think it's great when you listen to what's going on inside you. I think it's great when you trust your feelings. And I really think that you deserve to be happy and not toxically happy, but I think you deserve to be content and at mm -hmm. peace. Um, and so I, I really want to challenge these things. Yeah, that's great. And I love you keep speaking to the virtue of therapy because I, I know I just feel like it's so important to see a trained professional, you know, in so many cases, I, I hear a lot with the sort of the rec alcohol recovery world where somebody will talk about, I have two instances that are bugging me. So I'll just, I'll just going to tell you about them. Go for it. I'm ready. <laughs> but <laughs> like one person the other day in one of my sober groups is like, Oh, I'm having this massive anxiety. Like it's really bad. And the advice from people is like, go to more meetings and do the steps. And it's like, or go see a professional maybe who can give you actual tools to help with your anxiety. And there was a, another situation like that around a woman who'd gone through multiple rapes and the advice was pray. And I'm like, well, that's, that's ah. great. I'm not knocking prayer, but also go see someone who works with trauma. Like, right. you know, it just, and I, I wish there was a little bit more of that. I think that's what frustrates me about some, some lines of thought within the, the recovery community. It's like that, that, that doesn't solve everything and that just individualized one-on-one -on -one therapy, there's no real replacement for it. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of coaching right now. And again, I'm not knocking any coaches. I know some fabulous coaches. Coaching is a part of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes you should go see a mental health professional. <laughs> it's not the same thing, I guess, is the distinction I'm adamantly making. Super important, right? And it's funny, it's, I mean, I'm sorry for your frustration, but it's funny that you bring no, up this thanks. example because one of the things that I find myself doing all the time is saying, listen, I am so glad we are meeting and you also need to go to 12-step meetings. Yeah. And I yeah. find myself, and I find it on average, it takes me between a year and 18 months to convince people to go the first time. And then very often, then it is like, oh yeah, I'm doing this all the time now. Like, like once people finally consent to try it, it's like, Oh, unless so they go helpful. to a super weirdo meeting and then, you know, like there's right. always a possibility to have a bad experience, but it is so helpful. And yet you're totally right. And I say this as a person who sells therapy, it's not, it's not everything. And there really is no replacement for having one-on-one -on -one attention, you know, up to and including like getting the support from a group is amazing. But what if you are this person who has multiple rapes, sexual assaults, you know what I mean? Like what meeting 
what meaning is going to be available for you to really delve into the breadth of that experience without it being problematic to the rest of the people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And the community support I think is amazing. And I, I will say that about 12 step recovery and, and other recovery type programs or groups that put you in an environment with other people that have a similar goal and a similar path in life, especially when it's around like, you know, abstinence from a substance or creating a life without that substance. I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, those hugely valuable for me personally. So I, I put, I think it's great. I just also think that's not always the answer to everything. So a hundred percent combination combination is, is what I like to tell people. Um, if they need it, not everybody does, maybe you don't have some stuff you need to work on in therapy, but I, no. I don't know. I, I wish therapy was more available for everyone. I feel like we could all use it. I agree with you. And if you'll, if you will allow me to plug one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I do some volunteer supervision work. Um, at a place in LA called the Southern California Counseling Center. And they provide, there's a waiting list because it's in demand, but they provide the least expensive um, psychotherapy to people using pre-licensed professionals in the Los Angeles area. And it's, you know, this wonderful place that's founded under the idea that people should have access to this and it matters. Yeah, that's great. That's cool you volunteer, good for you. Thank you. It's, I, I actually, like, I'm glad that I do it. I'm also glad I do it. But I actually think in terms of this contentment thing that we're talking about, I think it's part of a balanced mm -hmm. life. You know, I think a lot of times um, somebody who is feeling a little down or sort of miserable might be well served to look and see if that is a part of their life that's being neglected. And I don't think it's an accident that service is such a big part of the 12 step model yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's I think when you are having a bad day, that's one of the things that you can always try is to reach out to someone else, ask how they're doing, see if you can help them or, you know, be active and volunteer or how can you go out and help someone else? Yeah. Well, and it, it, so here's something that's funny, right? As a therapist, one of the things that I find myself doing all the time is telling people to do sort of the opposite of whatever they do, right? So you might meet somebody who is, whose life is pathologically taking care of other people. And then it's like, I have to say like, I don't want you to lose that, but I want you to take care of yourself. So I want you to put that on hold. And then on the other side of it, you might have somebody whose main skill set is like just being really super kind to themselves, but to the exclusion of the world around them. And then it's like, I do want you to give a little more. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I know it would be lovely for you to come here and pay me and then I can fix all your problems for you. But, but I think the actual thing that you need to do is ladle some soup, um, yeah. you know, and get off your ass. Yeah. That's a hard conversation to have. Yeah, it is. Um, it definitely is. I think that's another one of those unknowns, a fear of like, oh, volunteering looks like X, Y, Z, but I'm not really sure, but I think it might be bad or scary or yeah, all those things that our brain does. And you meet amazing people volunteering. This is the other thing. And it's irrelevant right now because we're in a pandemic. But when people want to meet people, they go to bars. And that's cool. But like, who are you meeting at a bar? And I don't mean that bad people hang out in bars. I've mm -hmm. hung out in bars. But I mean, like, what, what side of people are you seeing? You're seeing kind of their drinking side, which is fine. Yeah. But if you go to volunteer, then you're going to meet people that they're like doing for the world around them side. And isn't that like the side of somebody that you want to meet, to date? It's a great perspective. And even just meeting, meeting friends. All right, you're like motivating me to volunteer with the Surfrider Foundation and go do some beach cleanups or something. Yes, well those beaches in San Diego are worth protecting for sure. A hundred percent, and there's a lot of trash sometimes. So um, it's an organization I like to stay affiliated with. So that's great motivation, thanks. Um, well, thank you. Like you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> what do you, and this is a really broad question, but since we've been talking about addiction and I'm always curious, 
because people again will ask kind of that why, but like, why do you think people become addicts? And I know that's a complex question and it's big. So no, I think it's actually a really simple question. And the answer mm. is because it works. Oh, that's a great response. I think yeah. that's a hundred percent true. People take drugs because they work. Yeah. When I worked with children, I would say the talk I would give them on drugs would be the worst thing that could happen to you would be that you love it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't have to fear <laughs> having a bad first smoking pot experience. The thing you need to be afraid of is that you might fall in love with pot and then pot is your whole life. And then what do you do? You're 35 years old, you know, smoking pot five times a day. And what have you missed out on? Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but drugs do work. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately the, I think the uh, consequences of any different number of different kinds outweigh the benefits. And that's when people have to start looking deep. But I mean, like if you, you know, liver problems, notwithstanding, if you drink six beers a night and nothing happens and there's no negative effects, I mean, obviously it'll have effects on your health, but then, okay. Right. right. But if you drink one beer a year and that beer fucks up your life, then you have a drinking problem. Yeah. It's, it's really not about quantity. It's about quality and yeah. the quality of your life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. Um, have you found any? Actually, I'm not going to ask that. Never mind. I was going to. Well, I will. <laughs> have, you, <laughs> have you found? Have you found any commonalities? I guess in working with addiction, because I know you work at least somewhat with addiction, right? I saw that on your on your website. I think it would be. I think it would be impossible to do be a therapist and not have it. Um, intersect with their practice. That being said, for for real work where the work is done around addiction, I have a few trusted therapists in Pasadena that I refer to because they're really phenomenal. That's great. It. That's um, great. But for sure, just like anything else, like you're not going to not work with addiction if you see clients. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead and give me the question. If I can't answer it, I'll be straight up with you. About yeah, that's how prevalent it is, I think. And I guess I'm just wondering, are there common traits that you see in people that come in with addiction problems? Um, trauma. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, that shouldn't, I don't think that surprises anybody, right? But trauma yeah. um, is a big one. You know, another one that, that I see come up a lot is early exposure. What is it? What do you mean by that? Meaning that like, I feel like somebody, um, not to be a Puritan about it, but like somebody that has their first drink at 12, mm -hmm. I think has a lot more chance of becoming um, an addict than somebody who has the first drink later in life. I, I don't, you know, and that might be like me making a false, a false association because it might just be that um, people who have their first drink at 12 are in places where there's a lot more to drink, mm. you know? But it seems to me that a thing I see a lot is that people who get a really early start tend to be vulnerable to this kind of thing, but trauma for sure. It's all, it's all just painful, yeah. sad trauma, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's just that, that need, you know, to feel better. That's Yeah, uh, and again, it works, right? It works in the yeah. short term or it works at the beginning. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. Um, yep. I know. What What do you think? What do you think is one of the biggest things that you got out of therapy, like on your own journey, or one of the biggest changes that you find happened in your life? Aside from, I know you said this really big change of leaving your job, and I guess maybe I'm I'm asking more on sort of a, a personality or emotional level, yeah, like relational my, level, on yeah. a characterological, like what yes. changed for me? It's a characterological change. I I uh, yeah, like my friend Jack says, right? I, uh, I, there's, there's been a lot, if you'll, if you'll permit me to be a little wordy on this. Permission you know, granted. Thank you. Many thanks. Um, you know, one thing to start with, I mentioned that I, I got into the business because I saw 
because we had couples counseling and I can tell you like people that work on their marriage and couples counseling, it pays. You just, you have a better partnership when you work on it. Right. And I think a lot of people think that you need to get to crisis point and then go get your treatment, but like people who really invest in their relationships that way, it pays. So if you're thinking about it, do it. Um, in terms of my own personal journey, I mean, there's all these little moments that, that sort of, um, come back to me. One of them was a, a really simple one. I was describing, I was in a different line of work. I was waiting tables and I had a little flare up with a, a coworker and I brought it into my therapist and I was pissed. And she said, well, can I challenge you on that a little bit? Which is her way of saying like a therapist way of saying like, are you going to blow up if I tell you that, that you're full of shit, which mm -hmm. she did, but it was helpful because suddenly it opened this window to me. Um, into a way that I was being and being seen and being experienced that I didn't have any notion of, right? I was so self-centered that I was seeing all, I mean, not it's a waiting tables problem, but like seeing all these people as sort of in my way. And the result was I was making it harder for other people to be around me. So having a, an added understanding of how people perceive me was really helpful. Um, getting, getting to be aware of other people's experiences is really wonderful. You know, like I think that most of us we'll find that, that even if we would like to say that we are people with diverse um, friend groups, um, a lot of times we're not. A lot of times we tend to surround ourselves with people who look like we look and who come from where we come from, right? And therapy is an opportunity to meet people who haven't had your life experience and to understand how they live and how they experience the world. And if you're willing to believe people, which you have to do, you have to do as a therapist, and I think you should do as a layperson, then you learn so much about the world and your placement in it. So I don't know, that's vague, but those are the ones that come to mind. Whatever it is, it's been a hell of a journey and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now there, there is one downside and I'll say that like I cry at weird stuff now. Um, I cry at commercials. Yeah, well, so like, I mean, one of the things is you get this thing where you, you know, they uh, sort of train you not to have your feelings, you can be raged, you can think things are funny, and you can be fine. And then that's kind of the male experience, right? But then you get to a place where you start to realize any of the other 400 million feelings that are going on inside you at any time. And we all have this amazing, colorful, emotional experience. So you start to name them, and then suddenly they're closer to the surface. And then suddenly something that you that that might not have stuck out to you starts to hit you in an interesting way and it might be just a very poignant commercial about something unrelated and then suddenly you're tearing up and you're saying i hate that this always happens to me um but you know damn it t-mobile you've done it again or whoever the hell it is <laughs> right? <laughs> right you know what i mean like i can't i can't believe you got me oh duels right and like <laughs> and, and you so so there have I don't know that I'd call that a drawback because it is a richer experience, but let's just say in terms of vulnerability, you know, I feel, I used to feel like I could watch anything and just be a total soldier about it. Mm -hmm. I like that. I'm curious what kind of commercials though. Any, anyone in particular that you can I, think of? They exist. I have to, I'll have to go. I'll shoot you an email. The next time I'm watching one and I really start to lose it, I'll be like, oh yeah. Hold on. I just have to see this. <laughs> and I'm not laughing at you. I think it's beautiful. I mean, I, I think it is like part of the richness of being human is to have access to feeling. It's such a gift. Like our bodies are these amazing barometers and to learn how to use them and just to feel it's so precious. 
Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, cry at whatever and laugh at whatever. It's like when we, I think when we have more access to the vulnerability, we also have more access to joy and to like to all of it. So it is a, a richer tapestry within ourselves, which is, I mean, I think that's kind of the point of being around, you know, being a human and all that. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, that to me, I think that's very well put. That is the point, I think. Yeah. And for sure, that's the point of the treatment that I provide. And it sounds like it's a big part of the treatment that you provide too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're kind of running up on an hour here, mm -hmm. but I did want to ask you, I might have to have you on for another episode, Nick. I, feel like I would I, love I, that. Yes, it's so fun. Um, and I love your perspective. And, and so this might be kind of a, a bit of a standard question, but I'm just curious, like, because my audience is primarily women, like how can we as women like better support the men that we love in our lives to maybe be more vulnerable or to have, I don't know, more open discussions or just support them as they go through life with some of these new, you know, feelings. I, you know, I think two things, the first thing, and I'm, and I'm really and truly um, not talking to all women here. I'm just talking to, if you find yourself to be a person who is a woman who is this kind of person, then I'm talking to you. Right which is that, you know, look inside yourself and look at what you're willing to um, accept from your partner and ask yourself, like, am I okay if this person cries? Am I okay if this person is afraid? Mm -hmm. um, you know, making room uh, for men to have non-traditional expressions of stuff that's actually just really superhuman, um, su extra human, not superhuman, but that's really like very normal. Mm -hmm. um, is a big part of it and and certainly i'm not placing the blame for this at women's feet but i'm saying that if you you know look inside yourself and see like what are the expectations that i have for the men in my life um that aren't maybe kind or or totally reasonable right and then the other thing is that i think that um you know people if we hold people to high standards a lot of times they reach them mm or else they deal themselves out of the deck and that's okay too. And so I think that a lot of times, you know, we, we all of us need to be held to a higher standard. Um, and I think we're having kind of a public request for men to be held to a higher standard. Um, but we need to hold that up. We need to say like, I know, I know that you are awesome and you are an adult and you are capable of being excellent. And so I'm gonna expect that from you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I like that. And I, I think that's an important question to ask. I don't think that's laying, you know, all the responsibility at the feet of women, but I think that's an important question to ask or questions of what do I expect from my partner and what am I okay with? Um, yeah. And I mean, and again, and granted, and I, hopefully this is your experience too. Like I'm a strength-based therapist. I meet people and I like them. I, I like the things that I see in them. I see the strengths that they do. Mm -hmm. And once you start to look at the world in that way, then it really starts to seem unreasonable that somebody could be anything less than excellent. And I don't mean like, I don't mean like storybook excellent, like, you know, being a millionaire, but I mean, just like, I know that somebody, I know that this person can be a great partner. Mm -hmm. I know that this person can be open with themselves and kind and to accept anything less seems unreasonable to me, you know? Yeah. I like that. It's like lovingly holding ourselves and the ones that we love to higher standards. Yeah. Well, and you know, because you're, you know, this, you have an entire podcast on recovery, right? Like families and relationships are systems and there's multiple participants in every system and every one of them has a role in deciding whether their part of the system stays sick or gets better. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like that a lot. Well, Nick, it's been great. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you like to cook because I saw that was one of your hobbies. Um, pie. Pie. Oh, I had some pie today after my hike. It was grand. It yeah. Was like 1030 in the morning. The hike's right next to this little pie area in Julian. I was like, well, I have to go. I'm here. <laughs> what is it about 1030 in the morning that pie tastes better? I don't know. I don't know. It's just when I wrapped up the hike and I figured pie time. Good for That's you. cool. What kind of pie do you like to make? I mean, all kinds, but my favorite thing, you know, I do it from scratch. So my favorite thing is to get like, um, cool. this past week I made a cherry bourbon pie from a recipe that a friend sent me. I was nice. dynamite. And I mean, you know, you get in there and you pit the cherries and you make the dough from scratch, but it's one of those things where once you learn how to make a pie, it's actually really simple and easy and mm -hmm. they kind of can come out great every time. And that's cool. what I like. I don't like to have to make a lot of judgment calls. You know how there's these chefs and they're like, oh, that's fine. I'll add a little salt. I'll add a little of this, right? I don't like having to make those judgment calls. I like the, I performed this according to the instructions and I put it into the oven and now it is perfect. Mm, my partner's like that too. Well, that's nice. You know, it's simple. It's yeah. more fun. Cause you know that if you do the steps, you're going to get the thing. Yes. And it'll be delicious. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, anything you'd like to pitch or share at all with the audience while you're here, promote yourself in any way. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Well, so folks that, you know, and I, I work on men and masculinity issues and codependency. Um, but I always welcome anyone that's looking for a therapist to reach out to me um, at nickbognertherapy.com. That's B-O-G-N-A-R. Um, one of my passions in life is helping people find good clinicians. So if um, a person calls and it's not a fit for me um, by anyone's account, then I'm happy to help people find any one of the many wonderful clinicians that I know um, in the area. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I have an on-again, off-again podcast called More Exemplary, um, which is available on all the regular old platforms and also at moreexemplary.com. Um, it is exhausting to make, and so I am very sporadic with it, but it is available um, for people that would like to see it. And I want to say thank you to you for, um, for having me here and for being willing to tell me more about SE. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. So yeah, I'll I won't shut up about it, like I said, but it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I love your approach to all of these things and um, thanks for coming on and, and sharing your perspective and your specialization in the work that you do. Thank you. And hopefully our paths will cross again soon. Oh, I'll make sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a creepy. I just mean, I'll send you an email at some point in the future and see I'll send you, you, I'll send you a little thing I like to call a human head in a box. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> well, folks, on that note, we're going to wrap it up for today. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh...